Hello and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 229. My name is Jacob Stovall, and I'm here with my co-panelist, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm here today with Melissa McEwen. Melissa is a web developer working in content. She often writes about the JavaScript ecosystem. She recently helped unionize Glitch, which signed their first collective bargaining agreement in late February. Welcome, Melissa. So glad to have you. Hi, everyone. We like to start each show by asking you a certain question. Melissa, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower is being extremely online and I acquired it by being given computers way too young and having nothing to do but play with computers. I like that phrase, extremely online. What does that look like today for you? Uh, It means I know I like way too much about what's going on on Twitter and the internet in general. And sometimes I'll make references to things that like you only know if you're extremely online and it's kind of embarrassing. I like don't even know what it's like to not be extremely online, but I'm trying to stop being extremely online because it's overwhelming, like trying not to check Twitter every five seconds. Oh, yeah, I do that a lot, too. I don't know if I would describe myself as extremely online, but I may have seen some of the same memes as you. And I think that would (laughs) give me a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, memes. uh what's the latest drama on Twitter today, that kind of stuff, you know? Is there a way to sort of turn that superpower and sort of help people around you? Or, you know, how, how do you how do you leverage that? Yeah, like, the only thing that's good about it, I would say, is that, you know, a lot, I try to write about things, you know, and provide my knowledge to other people. I mean, you know a lot, but on a surface level, that's the problem. So you have to always be aware of that. Like, I'm not an expert on unions, and, like, with the Glitch Union, uh, I was one of the original organizing committee folks, but I was laid off last year in March, and there were 18 people, I think, laid off. So, you know, the union's been going on without me, and that's great, you know. Me and some other extremely online people, when we started the union, we uh, we leveraged our extremely onlineness because we were connected to a lot of people who helped us. Like the CWA, which is the Communications Workers of America, we found them online, for example, and they were like critical in getting the unit actually started because, you know, we'd been talking about it, but they were the people that pushed us. And they're like one of the bigger unions. They've been around for a long time. They have like been organizing telecommunications workers primarily, and now they're doing some tech stuff. So very interesting. Well, as someone who is moderately online at best, I have been reading a little bit about recent union news with Glitch, but I would love to hear your story about sort of how it started and how it brought us to today. And Yeah, I mean, uh, there's only so much I can say, but the stuff that really was like building a union is about connecting with your coworkers. And a lot of people have said, you know, how are we going to build unions in a remote workplace? Well, I was remote. Half the company was remote. That's one good thing about it being extremely online is you're probably talk, used to talking to people online. And, you know, I connected to people in my workplace and people on my team. At first, it was mainly people on my own team. And then, you know, what CWA teaches you to do is to, you know, build connections in your workplace. You know, it's almost like, you know, you map it out and you talk to other people in your workplace and you try to leverage those connections. Like, I'm not, I wasn't connected to everybody in the workplace, but I was connected to some other people who were connected to people I wasn't connected to. So it was challenging in that, like, this was not an office, like, where I could go see these people every day. I had to kind of, you can't just, like, sneakily, like, invite someone to a call about unionizing. You have to, like, actually build social capital and, you know, build relationships and then turn those into those connections you need to build a union. And a lot of us, you know, had been following union stuff and tech. Um, like I was a member of Tech Workers Co. I think others were. And, you know, we thought since, you know, Glitch is a very diverse workplace, we want to, you know, make sure that workers have a seat at the table and can actually, you know, help each other and help the company do right by the workers. You know, it was, you know, it had some bumps along the road. You know, it is hard to organize people remotely. And it's, a lot of people have misconceptions about unions. Like they think unions are only for certain workers, like people working in a mine, uh, or they they have bad impressions of unions. Like, I don't know. I grew up and my parents were like, they told me that unions were bad. 
and we watched on the water waterfront and they were like oh look unions they are so corrupt but a union is just like an organization and it's a big organization and you know they have a history and they have a context and you know a union is just like anything like a, a company it can be bad it can be good you know it's based on the people and once you join a union you can help guide that union by being part of it i would think an extremely online person would be very good at that <laughs> yeah it, it did help to be constantly on slack and on twitter and good at really just making those connections that would not come naturally to me um sort of make all those personal connections like you just said yeah but also like you know, it was, I do think people who had those real life, who were at the office, did have an advantage in forming those connections, because not everybody at Glitch was extremely online, for example. So, um, and also, go, like, meeting each other in real life, occasionally, like, we'd go to conferences and stuff, that really helped. So it's complicated about how much organizing you can do in the workplace and at what times. You don't want to ever do it on times you're supposed to be working, for example. So. Uh, what were some of the things that made this unionization effort successful and possible? And what were some of the things that got in the way? I think we covered some already. Yeah, I think, you know, having a pretty social workplace that was social online, but, you know, like that doesn't include everybody. You know, there's some people who were more online than others, for example. And the fact we relied so much on online organizing, it was harder to reach those people. So um, it was very crucial that we have people in the New York City office who are able to, you know, do some on-the-ground, in-person organizing. And getting those people on board was like, once we got those people on board, that was a very important thing that we did. Because originally it was all, like, remote people, and then we added in the New York City office people. Yeah, and the bumps along the road are just, you know, misconceptions about unions, what they mean, you know. Um, people can union bust themselves just by, you know, having these misconceptions. Like, oh, a union is a third party, it'll affect my relationship with my manager. I can't be friends with my manager anymore. It's not true at all. So some of the organizing committee had been in unions before. Like there was one woman who's a social worker who had been a social worker union. And I had been in a civil workers union before. So I knew that I was friends with my managers in these unions. And, you know, I mean, not that being friends with the manager is a priority, but, you know, it, the, the idea that it would, like, if you're friends with the manager, you can't do that either. That's just not true. But some people thought that. What were, I mean, the biggest misconception I can think of is why do well-compensated professionals need a union? I'm sure oh, yeah, you've heard this all the time. One. Yeah. Yeah. To, fill, fill us in for that. Like, what do you say to that? I even saw online someone was like, oh, it's cultural appropriation of blue-collar workers. I mean, yeah, I do not agree with that. I think all workers benefit from a union, and it is just an organization that allows workers to negotiate with their bosses and in, on a fair playing field. It's not a culture. You know, you don't have to be in the movie The Irishman or on the waterfront or even know people like that. You know, it's just a way of organizing a workplace and having a seat at the table. So. You mentioned earlier that, I think, or maybe you implied that this union sort of joins multiple disciplines. To, is that true? Yeah, like um, we had engineers, and then we also had a media department. And, you know, that's where things would be hard because a lot of workplaces are quite siloed. And I've always been kind of against that. Like, I mean, I hate the term non technical, for example. Like video production people, those are the most technical people I know. They're literally working with like technical equipment every day and they know so much about it. Those people are technical. And then, you know, another big obstacle is like, who is eligible for a union? Like, who can join? It's not clear because tech has roles that, like, you know, aren't very traditional. Like, product manager, is that a manager or is that an individual co contributor? And often that's hashed out on the negotiating table. So, and it's based on like all these like laws. And I've read some of the laws. I'm not an expert, but you know, it's good to read, you know, the labor, a little bit of the labor law just to understand. But even if you know it, like it's interpreted differently by different courts and stuff. There's a National Labor Review Board that reviews labor disputes and stuff. And that was Trump's appointed board. So, you know, we wanted to make sure we got a voluntary recognition because we didn't want anything to go to that board at that time because they were very hostile towards workers. 
the reason I was curious about sort of joining together all kinds of different people from different roles, I was just curious if that sort of diverse workforce came with a diversity of sort of priorities and goals for a union, and if those presented any kind of challenges. Yeah, there's a big class difference between engineers and people outside of engineering. Engineers are were overwhelmingly paid higher than people outside of engineering, for example. And I totally understand the resentment towards engineers. Like we you need to acknowledge that if you're organizing multiple people and like outside of engineering. I mean, the fact that engineering is so well compensated, I mean I don't understand why, for example, a video producer isn't compensated the same as an engineer. Uh, it's just an accident of history and how culturally valued and supply and demand, all these things mixed up together. So, yeah, you have to realize that. And when it comes down to money, like paying dues, you know, for an engineer, it might be like, oh, you're taking 1% or 2% for the union. And that's like, oh, that's taking away from me being able to go on vacation. Whereas for someone who is making a lot less, that's taking away from their ability to pay rent. So that is really, really hard. And I don't have a good solution for that. You know, I wish unions would offer things like, you know, maybe peg it to your income, you know, maybe not, maybe at a lower percentage, but it tends to not be that high of a percentage. It's one to 3%. But acknowledging that that can be the difference between someone being able to afford something or not, like, especially the salary ranges were quite extreme in our case. So yeah, that was really hard. I'm listening to this conversation based on my background as a product manager who happened to have managed engineers, designers, and product managers. I don't know how that structure came into play, but even that tier, I wanted to be part of a union, but in, I think it's US law maybe that gets in the way that says managers of any level can't be unionized in any form, not even like a let's use a synonym for union, like a collective. People who tell each other, yes, you deserve more money or something like that. It's not, we're not incentivized to work together in any way. And we pretend that the HR department of the company does that for us, which they do the opposite often. What do you think about that middle management kind of thing and how it plays into product management? Have you thought about yeah, that? Yeah, that really sucks because then it, it becomes like some people feel left out who wanted to be part of the union. And, you know, at that point, you know, they feel like, oh, am I part of like, they're obviously not C-suite, you know, so that's really hard. And like other countries have other types of unionization, like sectoral bargaining that get around that. I don't know that much about that. But yeah, I mean, we weren't sure if a product manager fit under the definition of qualify or not. Like it just depends on like, if you make decisions on employment, if you tell people what to do, there's a lot of like criteria. And we did find that product managers were not going to be part of the union. So what does the product manager do? Well, they can organize themselves, but they're just not legally protected under this bargaining thing, under our labor law. So that really sucks. And I don't know what the solution is. You know, I guess getting involved in like bigger organizations like that work for unionization. The Google union is very interesting, and that is a different form of union. It's called a minority union, and um, I don't know that much about those, but uh, I know that people who are managers can join that one, but it has fewer legal protections. So I assume when CWA decided to organize Google under a minority union, it was because they felt they were not capable of doing a traditional union because there's so many obstacles to doing so in Google, Google size, and you know, locate multiple locations. It's very difficult. So you can organize however you want. It's just like what is legally protected. And that kind of goes in, in that article, I talk about petitions, for example. Petitions are an example of organizing that's not unionization. It's not protected by U.S. labor law, but it is a form of organizing. The Google walkout, that's a form of organizing. That's not unionization. You just have fewer legal protections and you don't have the structure that you get from a union when you do those things. Well, that's awesome. I'm not up to date on these. I'm going to be Googling minority union and sectoral bargaining after this call. Yeah, I didn't even know what a minority union was until that came out. I was like, wow, I guess I should, someone should write a book. There probably is a book. I'm going to probably find several. that book. Melissa, what brought you to doing this in the first place? Did you have experience with organizing before or was it something new to you? 
I didn't have any experience organizing, I suppose, but I was in a union before. I worked at University of Illinois in Chicago, and their IT departments are in a union, an older established union. So as soon as you join as an employee there, you're a part of that union. And that union, actually, you know, it's unions, some of them aren't that great. I think our union there was kind of mediocre, to be honest. They barely involved people, for example, and they were very top down. Uh, and that's one thing, you know, when you're organizing, you have to choose which union you're going to organize under or even to start your own union. And we thought about starting our own union. I don't feel that qualified to hire union lawyers. You know, you need to manage money because CWA provided all the lawyers and stuff like that and all the structure. I mean, CWA has gotten a lot of flack on Twitter recently with the Google union stuff. People have dug up, you know, the fact that they've represented security guards in the past. But, you know, it's a big organization. It's like working with the government, you know, you can't expect perfection. You've got to get involved. If you want to change things, you've got to be involved yourself. I'm very skeptical of the idea that we should just throw that away and start our own thing as tech workers, because I think, you know, people of different ages and classes and stuff have so much to teach us. And that's what you get when you join a big union like CWA. So, and you can't demand they fit your extremely online standards. So if you want them to follow the standard, you've got to join and get involved. So definitely a politics of compromise from the get-go. Yeah, and I've been involved with uh, civic technology a little bit. So I was a little bit familiar with that. I've worked in government contracting. And uh, I've gone to Chai Hack Night, which is a Chicago meetup for quite a while. It's a Chicago meetup focused on civil technology and government. So yeah, I was familiar with some of that. But like, if you're a startup person, maybe that's harder. You know, you expect... Unions are going to cater to you, you know, treat you like a freaking, you know, princess or whatever. But no, they're not. They are an established organization. They've got members. They have a history. And you've got to take that for what it is. All right, Melissa, you brought to the table to the union organizing effort your superpower of being extremely online. What other skills did some of the union organizers have that really helped? Yeah, actually being like consistent and organized. That's really important organizing meetings. I'm not into that kind of thing. And thankfully, there were other people who did that. And I thank them quite a lot. Taking notes, following up. Once you make me angry, I'm very effective at like arguing with people. So that's a good thing about extremely online, but it's bad about being extremely online. But it did come in handy a few times when unionizing. But otherwise, uh, yeah, doing in person on the ground work, I couldn't do because I was remote. And you know, Organizing the meetings, taking notes, following up with CWA, coordinating between different people, that stuff. Yeah, the other people helped with that, the other members of the organizing committee. And then, like, after the union was recognized, we had, like, an election. And some people ma- did that election where you, you elect, like, the reps. And other people did that. And I was really happy because I, I was tired at that point. Segwaying to a, a little bit of a different topic. Melissa, I think you mentioned something about companies and nonprofits who want to lead, like with petitions, and you have some thoughts on that I'm curious to hear. I am super anti-petitions. I think these organizations push them, and I think, you know, they're just antithetical to unionization. So, like Coworker, for example, they really push you to do these petitions. And A, you're alerting your boss that you're organizing, you're doing it under a way that's not legally protected, Why don't you just unionize? Um, I understand that some people can't. And if you genuinely can't, that's great. But I wouldn't trust a coworker to tell you if it's okay or not. And, you know, I have noticed that some of the conflict on Twitter regarding the Google union, like some people involved with that are also involved in coworker. So, you know, yeah, I'm really against that. And another company that's sprouted out, it's a startup. They're called Get Frank. They're also doing petitions. These are like a... They're very antithetical to unionization. And people don't want to say that because, you know, the people who are involved with that are, like, nice people. And some of them are even involved with, like, Tech Workers Co. and stuff. And, you know, they're nice online or they're well-respected. But, you know, at some point you got to say, this is just anti-union. I mean, taking a collective bargaining opportunity that can stretch across multiple issues and, you know, organize the workforce to you know, push for all of them and turning into a petition about a specific thing that has marginal support. Yeah, I don't see how that helps. I mean, I don't think that those startups are disrupting business organization. 
I think they're disrupting union, union organization. Yeah, and I think, you know, more people should call them out in the fact that, like, a lot of people who are the media goes to for, like, comments about tech organizing are, like, okay, so Liz Wong Jones, I really respect her. She's on Twitter, and she's a member of the board on Coworker, and I find that not good. I mean, I guess the argument is that any place where you can voice concerns and generate support within the workers, the employees, is better than none. But, I mean, that's not how the world works. We can have unions, too, or instead. Actually, putting effort into that means that you're not spending that time putting effort into into organizing. Yeah, so when we were first thinking about unionizing, you know, I was on Tech Workers Co. and they connected me to people at Coworker and they were really pushing us to do a petition. And I'm really lucky that my coworker, Steph, could have connected with CWA because she was like, no, let's talk to CWA. And CWA took it from there and they actually got us the motivation and the resources we needed to unionize. Whereas Coworker was like, oh, we love unions, but, you know, why don't you do this petition first? It's, you know, building organization. And CWA was like, no. And unfortunately, some people have taken that as like the CWA being against that is like an insult on them personally, which is really weird. Like that it's an insult for people who did like past organization efforts that weren't unionizing. I don't see why that is relevant. You know, I understand sometimes you can't unionize and I respect other organization efforts. But you're taking an example of a company that can unionize and you're pushing them to do a petition. You're wasting their time. You're endangering their jobs. It's just bad i think if there was evidence that it starting with petitions led towards more formal union organizing i would be more in favor of it but i don't know of any yeah like people use the google walkout for example and i guess like the google union some of the controversy on twitter was about how like the union wasn't involving the past organizers who did all this work for the google walkout i recognize the google walkout was an amazing thing and the people organized it were really great but like that doesn't mean that you have to use their expertise to unionize. The union should be for the current employees. And when I'm talking about our union at Glitch, I'm not speaking for the union. I was laid off. I'm not a member anymore. That's very sad. It's very unfair. But I'm not a member. And I, you know, the employees who are working there have insight into the company that I don't. So I don't expect them to recognize me or to ask me for advice or anything. I don't even talk to them that much anymore. Because, you know, that's... That's their sphere. I'm not an expert on coworker, but this reminds me of another metaphor a little bit. Let me know if this is close or not, or the similarities and differences. So you know how when you look on the bottom of a solo cup, you see a triangle recycle symbol with a number? Some of those aren't really recyclable, and the, the lobbyists who made that happen and you're required to put them on knew that ahead of time. So they are like doing this small change. Look, you can do the thing. And then that stops people from pushing back against the production of it. So it's like helping, but not really. And I'm hearing like your view of coworker seems to be like helping, but not really. I mean, the Frank one is even worse. I'm like, they're a for-profit startup. I'm like, if anyone is giving them positive coverage, they are not asking the right questions here. (laughs) So yeah. yeah. And I actually, like when I, I saw them written about, I... I attempted to join just to see what they were about. And they rejected me because they were like, oh, you're already in a union. You don't need us. So uh, very interesting. They they occasionally email me asking for my feedback. But I'm like, I don't think you're worth my time. If someone wanted to make, you know, a platform for unionizing, but I don't think you're going to get much traction in Silicon Valley on that one. There is one person who's doing that. It's called Unit, but I don't know that much about it. You know, I'm just very skeptical of the idea that tech can disrupt unions. And it's very, it's like the easy way out to say, oh, the old unions, you know, we don't, they're not radical enough. They aren't, you know, they don't cater to tech workers. Like to throw that all away for those reasons is bad, in my opinion, because, okay, they're not perfect existing unions, but you're unionizing with a diverse workforce that has a history and has power and, I don't know. It's. I think it's also classist too. Like, oh, we don't want to organize with these people that aren't tech workers. You know, we don't want to organize with these blue collar workers. I mean, they're not thinking that maybe explicitly, but that's what they're saying in a way. They don't want to say that, but that's what they're saying. 
Yeah, I personally have a problem with trade unions. That is that they fracture the the workforce and they prevent people with different trades from, from organizing together. And historically, that's sort of been on purpose. Like, there's a reason the AFL is still around and the Knights of Labor aren't. Yeah, I mean, unions are organizations. They're just like companies and stuff. They There's some that even have dark histories of racism and stuff like that. Although trade unions are a little different than, like, CWA. Um, that's, this is where I wish I was, like, more up to the terminology. But um, it's very complicated. Yeah, what I would just like to unionize whole companies and not worry about what job titles people have because i think that's the system's thinking way to do it yeah and um we unionized everyone in our company that qualified under the labor the national labor law and uh, not just engineers so that was good i mean luckily the people who are into like engineers being craftsmen or whatever are usually typically anti-union but otherwise you'd think that they were like they'd be like oh we need an engineer's trade union because you know, we're like electricians or something, but I think, you know, that would not be a good direction. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that there are unions for people who work at a company, separate from groups of people working on a technology, like Ruby user groups and all the other meetup groups for every technology everywhere and the conferences. It's like the skills are separate from the union for the company. <laughs> and it's funny, that I guess, and maybe historical that a lot of them are conflated together, like all the engineers. Uh, and a company are kind of doing both a little bit. I like that we're cleanly splitting it now sometimes. That sounds great. Uh, Melissa, I noticed that you have a Substack newsletter, which is a popular thing lately. Not that you're working on it a lot lately. I know we talked about that. But there's like a trend for individual people to be writing more and more online lately. And it seems like you're like aware of that and in that sphere, what's your experience lately writing online, trying to get an audience and all that, the process? I say no to Substack because I'm like, you know, this is just more work and I don't need any more work. So I started a Substack because I was like, oh, a lot of people are starting Substack. Uh, but then I was like, oh, you know, this requires me to do, this isn't like another job. You have to like have a consistent thing. And at least, you know, there is a, we are starting to Substack encourages paying creators that's good but at some point like it's like oh i'm paying like 10 different creators i, I wish there was the, this thing where i could just pay them all at the same time and they could have jobs and benefits oh that's called a publication too bad we've like systematically disabled these by like predatory capitalists like hedge funds and stuff buying them and like disposing of them like what's happened to the chicago tribune like i had friends who worked there and that thing has basically just been totally dismantled by basically like predatory companies. So I think Substack is going to be here and other similar models are going to be here for the foreseeable future. But I don't think they are. I think they're it's it's sad. Have you uh, worked with any of the traditional publications to try to get things published? Or I, I know you do JavaScript content work. Yeah, so I... I originally was a food writer and I worked for Chicagoist and Chicagoist. I left Chicagoist because I didn't have time due to my tech job, but they unionized and um, they were shut down because they unionized. And that's really sad. A lot of my friends lost their jobs. So, you know, I have a little bit of experience in the media world and, you know, I've watched the media world become, you know, so fractured and precarious. And I think the tech industry has been unfortunately a negative actor in that. But now I primarily write about JavaScript and I do so professionally. You know, it'd be nice to write about food instead. But, you know, I like JavaScript. I like coding a lot. So that's cool. And yeah, there's no jaws of food writing, though. Uh, tell us about something you wrote recently. I wrote about uh, JavaScript date libraries and like the different ones that are out there. And, you know, when you should use a library and when you shouldn't use a library. And that's for the blog I work for, which is called Skypack Blog. And uh I do DevRel for them, and they're a CDN for JavaScript modules. Oh, here's the thing we can talk about, like how DevRel, like people attack DevRel as being like non-technical, and I hate that. Yeah, please. Like there was a tweet this week, and it was like, or maybe it was on Friday, it was like, offend a developer relations person in one tweet, and I'm like, so it was a variation on the original one, which was offend a software engineer, or offend a DBA in one tweet, and those were often like, 
there are software engineers making fun of software engineers or DBAs, people making jokes about like data structures or bad data. The dev role one was like, oh, your job is fake. That's what all the jokes were. And most of them were not from DevRel people. And I'm like, I hate this. And I used to be a front-end developer and people used to joke like that about front-end developers. Like, oh, you just play with CSS all day. and You just push like little boxes around the page and give them different colors. And we need to recognize that there's sexism involved in this and also racism because front-end development and DevRel tend to be more diverse subsections of tech. And, you know, I'm just tired of men saying my job is fake and that I'm not technical. And I, I, you know, I left front end dev because of that partially. And I should have done that because, you know, at the end of the day, there's no way to convince these people that you're a real engineer. They're just not going to be convinced because they're sexist and they're jerks and they should be deleted. Yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of funny when it was software engineers laughing at themselves, but it, it turned into punching down pretty quickly and and then it just got mean and i did not like it i would say to those people that they should try a day in the life of a devrel and see if you think you're good at it yeah it's just like it's thinking that okay if you have these skills you don't have the technical skills and also that your other skills aren't valuable at all this is a constant struggle working with engineers especially working cross-departmental is like engineers not recognizing other skills like i was talking about video editing before i'm like that is the worst thing I can possibly think of. It's calling a video editor non-technical. They're literally the most technical people I could think of. They're working with software technology. And and also, like, a lot of engineers are like, oh, anyone can write things. And I'm like, I've edited y'all's writing. I know you can't write. So, <laughs> I mean, even, like, me, like, I feel like sometimes the more engineering I do, the worse I become as a writer. And that's scary. But I try to balance it. I try to be a mediocre engineer and a mediocre writer. I want people to stop doing that because it's just a, a shitty thing to do. But I will also say that as you get more experience as a software engineer, so I'm a principal now, which means I'm a huge deal. But as you get more experience, you need to get good at a lot of the stuff that DevRels are good at. You need to be able to convince people that your ideas are good. You need to be able to communicate both verbally and in, in writing. You need to give a shit about product and marketing and customer support and people who aren't engineers. You have to start doing all that stuff if you want to grow as an engineer. And so to some extent, I think these people are limiting themselves more than they're limiting Devro. They should still stop being shitty people, though. Yeah, the whole principal engineer thing is funny because I, I was just thinking about how like so many like every company has a different definition for like principal, senior, junior. That's one of the things that a union can help with. and like. Otherwise, it can be very arbitrary and you can feel like they're used to like discriminating against people. So if the union can negotiate what a ladder is and what it means, that's way better than having just a random manager do it. I That's my rant with like all of tech. Like we're always constantly reinventing the same thing over and over again. Like ladders, we're like, oh, we've got to build this from scratch for ourselves. With Even though we have no training on building ladders. We're just going to invent this because we know everything because we're engineers. Same with interviewing process. I'm like, oh, there's decades of research on interview process, but you want to invent your own new interviewing process. I'm like, that's at some point you're just like experimenting on people and that's like unethical. I'm like, take your weird games elsewhere. If you want to design weird games, play Dungeons and Dragons or something. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to take human performance seriously, you can do that. People have been doing that for decades. You just need to go take a course and read some books and start taking it seriously. You know, the, it's not hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to evaluate human performance because human performance is very complex, but it's impossible if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and I try to get, like, any interview process I'm involved with designing I'm like, first of all, why am I involved with designing this? I'm not qualified. Second of all, at least I did read some research. And I do know that the research shows that you want to do a structured interview. And if I can just get people to agree to that one thing, it's so much better than if they're just asking random questions. So a structured interview means you agree on a structure beforehand for the interview. You agree on questions and what you're going to talk to the person about or what exercises you're going to do. You insist on doing programming exercises. You ask the same ones to every candidate. So um, there's other things you could do to make it more fair, but I, if you just have that one baseline, otherwise it comes, it's, it's so arbitrary. 
there's a book called hiring a players or something like that and i like some of the advice that it has but i think the idea that you can distinguish between quote-unquote a and b players in an interview is pretty marginal but i do like the parts about trying to make things more evidence-based when you're trying to assess capability i think that a lot of the hiring practices we have today mostly are about providing motivated reasoning to hire people who look like you and that's about 90 percent of what they do yeah and there's also this thing i will die in this hill but i have people who insist if we don't do a specific code exercise or do like some kind of screener that we're gonna hire someone who can't code who literally can't code and some people have insisted that they've worked with such people and i'm like really skeptical of that like can't code what does that mean i don't know does it mean they just didn't integrate with the team correctly no one tried to help them i'm not sure you know uh, I'm just really skeptical of that. It's a, it just sounds like more hoops to jump through, but I have not convinced anybody of that besides myself, <laughs> at least in workplaces. I mean, I think in my in my career, I've maybe worked with one person who I genuinely thought couldn't code, but that's when I was pretty new. And what I think now is that they were really not put in an environment where they could be successful. They were dropped in immediately into a high-pressure scenario with little experience, with a team that was small, under-resourced, over-pressurized, and didn't have time to, to support them. So what I thought then was, wow, this, this guy sure can't code. He sucks. What I think now is, wow, we sure screwed up putting him in that position. Yeah, like I've taught people to code who were 12. I'm really skeptical that someone was hired that managed, I don't know, they, I just sounds like they're not managed well or not on, onboarded well, but you know, that would be a cool, like, I don't know, maybe if I, maybe I'm becoming too interested in HR, I'll become like an HR researcher and study the phenomenon of people saying that their coworkers can't code. And what does that mean? Yeah. I'm going to actually like find those people and ask them and, and then find the people who supposedly can't code and find out they actually can. They just, they were in a very difficult environment, for example, or I don't know. I've been in environments where getting the dev environment started took you like five days. So no wonder they had trouble. You thought they couldn't code because you did set them up to be able to code. They had to install 40 different things and do a proxy or whatever. So yeah. I'm as someone who's, who's very, well, th th there's that phenomenon, stereotype threat. You perceive that other people are making sort of preconceived judgments about you. Like, oh, I'm the only person of color on my team, and I can tell that I'm not expected to do well. It affects your performance. And that makes, you know, as a white male, that actually does make some sense to me. Like, if, if I can feel that, like, I'm, I'm going to be judged for, like, the output that I put out instantly... Uh, whether it's like, you know, I didn't follow the great style or if it looks like a, my work is going to be picked apart immediately, that's just going to be debilitating. And I'm just sort of going to be constantly focused about looking good rather than trying to solve the problem. That, that, that is not what Rain's story does not surprise me at all. Yeah, if I actually hired someone who couldn't code, that would be actually kind of exciting to me. It would be like my fair lady or something. Because like I could definitely teach them how to code. And I'd be really impressed because I was like, Oh, they were able to talk about all these projects and stuff and not actually be able to code. I, I don't believe this person exists, by the way. I think. Uh, like... The other thing I, I really wish people would understand is that human performance is ecological. The context matters. If you take one person and drop them into five different hypothetical companies, you'd get five different outcomes. They'd perform in different ways. You wouldn't get the same performance for them in those different companies because it's not just about the person. Yeah, and it's also about the demands of the job. Like, I worked with one guy, and people told me he couldn't code. And what they actually meant was that, like, they just didn't think he was technical or something. But he was coding every day. He was doing, like, Drupal templates, which is not considered, like, the highest level of work by some snobby engineers. But that guy could definitely code. And he did his job. And it was very unfair to say he couldn't code. I have a story I can share about some evidence-based interviewing I did back at the LIT department. We evaluated hundreds of student employees to fix laptops every year. We hired a whole bunch. And we evaluated them based on the people skills and their technical skills on a scale. We put that into data for all the points, that evidence and structured questions and all that. 
And some people had like a five on people skills out of five, then one on technical skills or vice versa or something close to that. And then we look back a year or two or three later after they had time to like learn and grow in the position. We loved all the people with the five on people skills. They were the best employees. They learned the most over time. We're proud of them. They were great to work with. They taught other people a lot too. But the ones with the technical fives and people ones, a lot of them resigned or didn't like the job or people avoided working with them. They were like solo employees and like maybe they got some work done. But that lesson, like you can learn the technical part, but you can't necessarily learn the people part. Some of it's learnable if you're motivated, but the disposition is what really drove success in that role. And I think that applies everywhere. It's not surprising. I wish there were like more approaches to teaching people skills because like, I don't know, it feels like there's a lot of trainings for engineering skills, but not for people skills. And I've definitely, like, I was raised by parents who were weird and homeschooled me. So I definitely use a lot of like stuff, like books to learn people skills and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I mean, it's super basic, but how to win friends and influence people, that one. Like, if you just read that, that, I mean, it gets you some of the way there. So, uh, you know, I, I wish there were more resources like that. Yeah, I would say that you can learn people skills, but companies don't teach them. That's not what companies think is part of their responsibility. They think that they're hiring the person as they are and can teach them technical things. And that's another problem, which is that companies aren't providing the opportunities to grow that people need. There's probably different people skills for different companies that would be successful. Yeah, it's the same thing as like this this saying like that, I've heard at workplaces like, oh, he doesn't know how to code. I've also heard the same thing. Like he has no social skills. It's like something you're born with and can't be changed. And that's just your lot in life. And I don't believe that. I mean, I was homeschooled. And like when I first went to school, you would have said I had poor social skills. But now I have serviceable social skills. So, you know. I think Casey pointed out an important distinction between a disposition to be personable and you and learn and apply people skills versus the skills you have at a particular moment. And, you know, as a as a neurodiverse person, I think that's a really important thing, because I'm sure people have said behind my back many times in my life that I don't have people skills without, you know, commenting on like the disposition of like my ability to do well and interface with people. I think two different things. I think neurodiverse People, I mean, I'm also in that category, also sometimes are even better at certain people's skills because we've been told we have these issues and we really want to think about them. Like, I've read a lot of books. Like, I don't think most neurotypical people have read as many books as I have on, like, human psychology. I wasn't a psychology major. I just, like, want to know why do people, why are these normal people trying to get me to do these things? What does it mean? So... On some level, am I asking? Yeah, but that's a skill, and it's a learned skill that is valuable to me. Can we talk about unions again? Because I have a question. If you already talked about this before I got here, just let me know. But my question is, what would you say to someone who really has no idea how to get started with this, but thinks that there's an opportunity to organize their company, is worried about you know, retaliation and things like that and then wants to get started. Yeah, you know, get in contact with, they could DM me and I could connect them to people at the current Glitch Union or to, you can approach a union directly, like CWA is happy to help. The union that Kickstarter organizers worked under, OPIU, I think is also another option. It can be hard to pick a union because uh, some only do like local organizing, but there's some that are national like CWA. So I, I, I mean, CWA has a lot of resources and I would just go with them at first, but you know, you can always do your research and stuff. I just be careful with people who direct you to those petition sites or whatever. So and that and did happen to do, me. Don't do your organizing in the company Slack. Oh yeah, for sure. Use Signal. Don't do it on company time when you're supposed to be working, you know, build social relationships with people at work. Although that, I mean, it could be like, I don't know if. I, I was a member of a company where they specifically seemed to discourage social relationships. Um, I was a contractor, so I wonder if that was a way that they were discouraging organization and unionizing. And I, you see that with Uber and stuff like that. Like Uber drivers, they're not given like a company Slack or whatever, or even like 
they don't have a way to chat with other drivers. They've had to do this on their own time, like on Facebook. They've used Facebook to organize. So definitely don't use any company resources or company time. You're not legally protected if you do that. If you do contact like CW and stuff, they'll tell you what's legal and illegal. It is, for example, legal to organize during lunch, I believe, but you should definitely check that beforehand. And then you get into issues like if you're remote, like time zones, like everyone has lunch at a different time. Yeah, you have to be creative. Yeah, it turns out it's legal except for all of these loopholes that make it not legal. And companies are incentivized to make the case that what you did was illegal so that they can fire you. So just be extra careful. Yeah, if, I don't know. I, I've known of union organizers that, I mean, they're going to find a way to fire some of them. But it, if you can, like, stand up and up in your job, you're harder to fire, you know, like, make sure to attend all your meetings. Don't be late to work. I mean, I I am not a fan of that. And I think it's very unfair that you have to be expected to live by this, like, perfect standard that non-organizing employees don't have to follow. But I'm willing to do it for the union. Yeah, I mean, just be aware that once it becomes apparent that this is what you're doing, they're going to try to fire you, any company as well. And so you need to be on your best behavior, even more so than you were before. And, you know, it is scary organizing unions. You know, I've often wondered, you know, um, would I have been laid off if there was a union or not? I don't know. But the thing is, you negotiated severance for me, and I didn't have to do that individually. So I was, it gave me a good cushion when I was laid off. So, and I know people who are laid off who didn't have those things. So, you know, a company can hurt you even if you don't unionize. So, and at least unions give you some protection. And I'm very grateful for CWA negotiating my severance. So, are we getting close to reflections? I think it is time for reflections. I can go first. As a product manager and engineering manager before, I've always been interested in being part of a union. And it's awesome hearing a success story about how one happened at a company, even though it was the formal type that I'm not eligible for as a manager. But now I'm really interested in looking up some of these alternative forms like sectoral bargaining, minority union. I think there's a whole lot happening recently that could help middle managers like me and a lot of my roles get the benefits. Often I hear, no, you can't possibly ever be part of a union. Why would you even ask that question? And it's, it's just great to hear someone actually who has worked with unions say, no, that's possible. It's just a different form, not covered by laws. That's what I want to hear. That's what I wanted to believe. It's really yeah, it's so unfair. Like uh, it, unions are just like, what's the law now? Doesn't have to be the law tomorrow, for example. And different countries have different forms of unions and stuff. So I'm thinking more about the thread we got on about sort of interpersonal skills, people skills, and I'm thinking more about how those can be really just a function of sort of the culture of your team and who's on it and what everyone's individual needs are and how their brains are wired and so many other factors. And I'm just sort of thinking about like, well, what are the right skills that I need for my team rather than sort of just an arbitrary or a, a sort of a universal list of what those skills might be? Yeah, I'm thinking I need to like, I mean, I, I'm here talking about unions and there's so much I don't know about unions. And I really, I'd like to study unions in other countries, especially. I really want to learn about different forms of unionization and you know, really delve into the history of unionization. I've done it a little. I was never taught that much about unionization in school and stuff like that, especially from homeschool because my parents were anti-union. But even in like when I went to public school after being homeschooled, we really didn't talk that much. I know about like the triangle shirtwaist fire, but you know, it's very, I think for most people, we don't know that much about it. And I definitely want to beef up my history and international knowledge on that. Yeah, I think also looking into collectivizations, work around collectives, things like that. There's a tech consultancy that does the websites for Verso and Haymarket and some other lefty publications, and they're a workers collective. And there are actually a surprising, surprising number of them. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting to me. Like, I've done a little bit of co-ops and stuff. I've been members of co-ops. There was an interesting article. I forget where I saw it, but it was about how co-ops can be good, but they're not the answer to worker organizing because often they replace worker or like unionization. Like, for example, they were talking about this coffee shop that they were trying to unionize and they all got fired and then they formed a co-op and that was seen as a success. But it, it's not necessarily, for example, I'm a member of a co-op, a food co-op, 
and the workers there were trying to unionize and the co-op was union busting them. And I was like, wow, that is really special. And as a member of the co-op, I was like writing to the board. I was like, how dare you? I'm going to quit. <laughs> you know, uh, we should recognize the union. They really fought that union. And I was like, this is supposed to be like co-ops are supposed to be empowering to workers, but just like unions, there are many different forms of co-ops. Like there's a very interesting history, especially internationally. And I don't even know like the tip of the iceberg on that. So, uh, but I'm very fascinated having been in co-ops and been involved with co-ops. Another issue with co-ops is often like the membership that can be almost like trade unions in that like they can require a kind of onerous process to join one. I think the thing I'd like to leave our listeners with is you might have heard the saying, an injury to one is an injury to all. And you might know that that comes from the Wobblies at WW, but you might not know that it comes from the preamble to their constitution, which says in part, trade unions foster a state of things which allows one set of workers to be pitted against another set of workers in the same industry, thereby helping defeat one another in wage wars. Trade unions aid and aid the employing class to mislead workers into the belief that the working class have interests in common with their employers. Um, these sad conditions can only be changed and the interests of the working class upheld only by an organization formed in such a way that all of its members in any one industry or in all in industries, if necessary, cease work whenever a strike or lockout is on. So the IWW obviously believes very strongly that you have to organize whole companies and not just the techies maybe get their union because they're special. I mean, can you imagine if Uber, if the tech workers and the drivers unionized together? They, they share the same interests, folks. They could do that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, could they? That's another thing that contracting or permalancing, like, I don't know. Maybe there'll be a major, like, court challenge, especially under the Biden administration where the National Labor Board might be more sympathetic. You know, are can contractors unionize with regular workers? Mm -hmm. I mean, contracting is like a way to bust unions and to you know, keep people in a position of precarity. So, but what if they rule that you can unionize? Once you realize it's arbitrary, you're like, oh, if you've got good enough lawyers, if you have politicians that can get involved, you know, maybe unionization 10 years from now will look really different because maybe- yeah, they I mean, the main, the main difference is that the drivers don't have a multi-million dollar lobbying organization at their back. Like that's the, the main difference and the reason they're not getting the respect they deserve.